Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. On November 17, 2019, the Chargers arrived in Mexico City to play in a special international Monday night football game against the Kansas City Chiefs. This was in the middle of the team's third season since its move from San Diego. The night before the game, the team held an event for fans that had traveled to Mexico City for the occasion. During this event, Chargers owner Dean Spanos asked to say a few words to the fans. But as Spanos was introduced, the crowd reaction was mixed. Spanos's face is stoic throughout his speech. This isn't the first time he had been booed when speaking in public, and it likely won't be his last. He plods through his prepared 30 seconds of remarks with a steady, monotone voice, one that evokes feelings of duty rather than passion. Spanos's words are barely audible in the video, but he thanks the people in Mexico for their hospitality and the fans from the U.S. who had voyaged for the game. Mind you, he's giving this speech almost three years after his decision to move the team to Los Angeles. And he was speaking in Mexico City, over a thousand miles away from San Diego. At the end of his speech, he gives one last feeble shout. It was clear that the crowd in the room were Chargers fans, and very passionate ones at that. They loved the team. They just didn't like Dean. I always wonder what's going through Dean Spanos' mind in moments like these. If he thinks about his father, Alex, who bought the team in the 80s and bequeathed it to Dean before he passed away in 2018 at the age of 95. I wonder if he thinks about his grandfather, Gus, who arrived from Greece in 1912 with $20 in his pocket. If he thinks about his own sons, and whether their public perception will change when they become the face of the franchise. If time really does heal all wounds. After all, how could a man possibly elicit such a visceral reaction from a room full of supposed allies? How did the Spanos family rise to prominence, and eventually NFL ownership? What effect does a franchise's owner have on a football team and its fans? And what happens when a team of underdogs finds themselves playing in football's biggest game? I'm your host, Rafi Cantor. This is Bolton. Football might be over, but NBA, college basketball, and the NHL are in full swing. And the only place you should be betting on these sports is at betonline.ag. Baseball season's starting up soon, and right now, the favorite to win the 2021 World Series is last year's champion, the Los Angeles Dodgers at plus 320. The Yankees are second at plus 600, but would you look at that? Who is the third most likely team to win the 2021 World Series but my San Diego Padres? All those years of mediocrity, rooting for Jose Perella and Ryan Schimpf, they are finally paying off. I'm locking in that bet at plus 850. Bet Online even covers awards, TV shows, and reality TV. Bet Online has hundreds of props with real time odds on almost anything you can imagine. And of course, the 24 hour online casino. Head to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's betonline.ag. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. And now, back to the show. Chapter 2. The Bottom Line The Spanos family's journey to riches has all the makings of a classic American dream tale. Here's Professor Tony Platt. 
He's a distinguished affiliated scholar at the Center for the Study of Law and Society at UC Berkeley. Spanos, uh, Alex Spanos was, um, his parents and family came over from uh, Greece. He was, he was born in the United States. Uh, his parents were immigrants from Greece. He grew up uh, poor in Stockton. That's Stockton, California, which at the time of Alex's upbringing was a sleepy farm town in the Central Valley. After working in Gus's bakery, Alex struck it out on his own, and through his sheer will and the power of the American way, he made it to the top. It's a happy story, right? Well, it's actually a little more complicated than that. Alex Spanos accomplished great things in his life. He was a remarkable businessman and an ardent philanthropist, both in Stockton and San Diego. But it's important to see the whole picture when looking back. Alex and his father didn't get along. When they were young, Gus Spanos would regularly beat his children. Alex and his siblings were made to work 14-hour days in the family bakery. And Alex's parents' marriage was a little rocky. But perhaps most important to the story, Alex remarked that his father didn't allow his children to do one thing. Play sports. By the time he was 27, Alex had had it. He was a college dropout, getting paid next to nothing to work for his dad. And when his father refused to give him a raise, Alex quit. According to Alex's autobiography, Gus Spanos warned his son, quote, you're going to crawl back here on your hands and knees and beg for this job. Alex replied, I just as soon blow my brains out, end quote. Alex is probably the most impatient human being I've ever known. I mean, you have have lunch with Alex Spanos and I mean, the food comes and that's it. You're Very, very impatient man. He he didn't have much patience for anything. That's Nick Canepa, senior columnist at the San Diego Union-Tribune and a decades-long friend of Alex Spanos. Alex felt he had been loyal to his father, and he wasn't rewarded for it. So now, Alex Spanos would be taking a risk. He wanted to show his father that he could do things on his own. Alex looked around Stockton and saw the fields filled with migrant farm workers, toiling for hours a day. That's where Alex saw opportunity. All such farm jobs, which are tough, dirty, or unpleasant, are generally referred to as stoop labor. Understandably, then, this is the only area in which the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. But the term most commonly used is braceros. In Spanish, this means a man who works with his arms and hands. The Bracero program was a series of labor and immigration agreements instituted between the U.S. and Mexico during World War II to fill the labor gap. And under this agreement, uh, the workers from Mexico came in and had to live under limited conditions in the United States while they were here and uh, were required to also return to Mexico at the end of the contract. The program was so popular that it was extended after the war and throughout the 50s and much of the 60s. Braceros usually worked for wages around $7 a day. According to the contract between the two governments, the American farmers who employed Braceros were also required to house and feed the workers at cost. In other words, not for a profit. Rye Rivard is a former reporter for The Voice of San Diego. There's a little bit of expectation that, okay, if you're going to set up a, you know, a, a craft services, if you're going to set up a catering business, you're going to make some money. Alex Spanos, having just quit working for his father, got the idea to cater food to the farmers who needed to feed the Braceros. He got a bank loan. Um, 
and decided to start making sandwiches. There's a some pretty serious questions about whether he overcharged them for the sandwiches he was selling. We're talking like you know bologna sandwiches in some cases, and he was making like a buck a day per person at one point um, back in the 1950s. It's like nine dollars in today's money off each bracero by taking a a cheap sandwich, marking it up, and selling it to a farm worker who basically couldn't go anywhere else. But Alex Spanos would make a true fortune when he made one big change to his business model. He would no longer just be delivering food to farmers. He'd be delivering braceros. And uh, he began uh, recruiting uh, workers from Mexico for the um, bracero program in the early 1950s. Uh, going down to the border and recruiting people and bringing them up to work Stockton and the San Joaquin Valley. Spanos began housing hundreds of workers in a warehouse on the San Joaquin County fairgrounds. Within four months, Spanos had made $35,000, and that was back when the average American was making $3,500 in a year. By the time he was in his early 30s, um, uh, in, in the mid-1950s, he had a staff of something like 30 people working for him. He was making 7,000 meals a day. Within 12 months, Alex was housing and feeding 1,500 men. In the first five years of his business, he was making a 60% profit on each farmer and profited almost 700 grand, over $6.5 million in today's money. The Braceros who came to work in the U.S. had few choices in their labor and living conditions. You're in a new country, uh, employment is sort of tied, your sort of immigration status is tied to your work and you're out in the field. Like, where, where are you going to go? Where are you going to work? What are you going to do? It was sort of like a semi-custody that they were in. They were in work camps in various places and uh, they were sort of the mercy of people who would uh, sell them things that they needed for daily life. In a 2005 interview, labor activist Dolores Huerta named the Spanos family specifically when listing those who had gotten wealthy off of the Braceros. If you're making money in this way uh, off of people that can't eat anywhere else, that are eating food that isn't their customary diet, and you know it's pretty cheap to put together. And so then you mark it up and you sell it to people that it that have to eat something that aren't used to eating it. I mean, yeah, you could see the obvious sort of ethical issue there. There is there is also a legal issue. Um, I don't, you know, it's at this point so far in the past, it never really got dealt with at the time. But, you know, you had this contract and the contract said that meals need to provide, be provided to Braceros at cost, which means without profit. But he made a fairly exorbitant amount of money. He was making what in today's dollars would be, you know, millions a year. Um, off selling sandwiches to people that couldn't buy sandwiches or food anywhere else. But Alex Spanos's big gamble was paying off. He would later write in his autobiography, quote, risk. That's the key ingredient of entrepreneurship. Those who inherit wealth are not considered entrepreneurs. Only a business person who assumes risk can be called an entrepreneur, end quote. So he's rather proud of this. He's rather proud of the fact that he was able to gouge um, Uh, very vulnerable farm workers from from Mexico to make his first fortune. But Alex would get out of the catering business when his accountant made an observation that would change his life. He was paying too much in taxes. He goes to his accountant. His accountant says, I suggest you find some real estate investments that take advantage of some tax shelters. Acquiring land in California during the post-war boom wound up being a cash cow. 
California became the nation's most populous state in 1962. Alex would buy acres of land and sell them for double what he paid in less than a year. He soon owned large swaths of land in his hometown of Stockton. Once again, John Gennaro, former managing editor for Chargers SB Nation site, Bolts from the Blue. He found this little city that no one cared about, and he bought all of the land because he understood that all the cities around that were eventually going to bleed into Stockton. And then anytime anyone wanted to do anything in Stockton, either he owned the land or he would build a building on top of it and he would own the building. By the mid-1970s, Alex Spanos was the largest builder of apartments in the United States. His company had multiple planes, which would ferry him and his staff around the country to their various divisions. That staff, by the way, was largely composed of his family members. Alex would openly brag that the structure of his company was, quote, based on nepotism, end quote. His brothers, nephews and nieces, and soon his children would all work for the company. Alex loved it. Loyalty was everything to the man who had been let down by his father, and he believed a family business ensured loyalty. I asked Nick Canepa why he thought the Spanoses have always run such a family-oriented business. Well, maybe because they don't trust anybody else. You know, maybe kind of, you know, it's certainly possible. While Alex had a combative relationship with his father, Gus, Alex and his son Dean's relationship was quite the opposite. Dean worked for his dad right out of college, and by the time he was 24, Dean was running Spanos Construction's entire Florida division. Alex was molding Dean in his image. He was the heir apparent to a construction fortune. But there was one big difference between Alex and Dean. Dean had grown up rich, and Alex had not. Oh, I think I think I think Dean was a little smoother, uh, smoother around the edges than Alex. I think Alex was was more was more uh, you know more emotional. Jim Steig worked for Dean Spanos as the Chargers' chief operating officer from 2004 to 2010. He's introverted. He's not. He's comfortable in a crowd of ten or something like that. But beyond that, he's not. And he's not a guy that can reach out affectionately toward anybody. Once again, former Chargers beat reporter Kevin Acey. I talked to a lot of people outside of football that knew and dealt with both men uh, in, in the realm of politics and the realm of business. Uh, multiple people who had been in meetings where things were you know, being tried to be accomplished with Alex and Dean. And then with just Dean after Alex, uh, you know, had, had pulled away from public life. And Alex was the kind of guy who would get really mad if you weren't doing what he wanted you to do. And he would probably cuss and he would storm out of the meeting. But he would call a couple hours later and say, all right, you do this. I'll do this. We'll get, we're done. Okay, good. We got it done. And that would, they would consummate a deal or make progress. Well, Dean, in the theory of other people, is he just didn't have his dad's gumption. He didn't, uh, you know, have his dad's instincts. He did have his dad's temper. So you'd be in a meeting, you wouldn't get what he was wanting, he'd cuss, blah, blah, yell, storm out, and never talk to you again. That was the difference between the two guys. Alex said of his son, quote, he started counting his money before he made it, end quote. When an economic downturn hit the family business, Alex said, quote, no one expected Dean to stay with the company. Although he has been in my shadow, he never gave up in anger or frustration. He stuck it out, end quote. Dean had always wanted to impress his father, 
And that wasn't just limited to work. Alex Spanos was obsessed with golf. He semi-retired at the age of 33, just so he could play 18, 36, sometimes 54 holes in a day. He would golf in tournaments with Bob Hope and Bing Crosby all over the world. He bragged about being one of the top amateur golfers in the country. Dean spent much of his childhood on the golf course with his father. Well, I, I, he just, I think he loved the sport. And Dean, Dean, was a, Dean was a really good golfer and probably still is. I don't know. But. In 1990, Dean played in the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, one of the highest profile amateur golf tournaments in the country. Celebrities and athletes from all walks of life competed. In these tournaments, amateurs are allowed to claim a handicap, which allows golfers with different skill levels to play competitively with one another. Pat Finley is the Chicago Bears beat reporter for the Chicago Sun-Times and a native San Diegan. Uh, long and the short of it was he played in the Pebble Beach Pro-Am and was accused of fudging his handicap. You know, and if you know anything about golf, you know that... Uh, your word on your handicap or on your score is uh, about about the only thing that uh, a man can judge himself by. <laughs> and uh, for that to be uh, called into question, I, I think it's in a way probably telling. Dean claimed that he was an 11 handicap, a high number for someone who had grown up playing the game. He took a risk and Dean won the tournament, but he's never been invited back to play again. Loyalty and risk. These are the words that would set Alex and Dean Spanos on their own collision courses with history. Because Alex Spanos was ready to take another big risk. He wanted to buy a football team. The Chargers were not nearly the first team that Alex Spanos had the chance to buy. He declined a chance to be the expansion owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1974 for $16 million. He declined another opportunity to be the 49ers owner in 1976 for $18 million. And he wanted to own an NFL team. He came very close to buying the 49ers. Uh, Al Davis was was brokering the deal up there, and and it ended up going to Eddie DeBartolo, which was certainly fortunate for the 49ers, but Alex wanted that team badly. Both times, he turned down the opportunity for the same reason. He thought the teams were overvalued. The combined valuation of both the Bucks and the 49ers today is $5.7 billion, according to Forbes. By the time the 80s arrived, he was impatient. Alex asked the board of his company, composed mostly of family and friends, for their approval to buy the Chargers. The board, including Dean, voted against buying the team 10-2. to 2. The very people who Alex boasted about for their loyalty were now opposing him. Remember, Alex wasn't allowed to play sports as a child. Owning a professional team was a dream of his that he simply would not let go of. And so when the chance of, of, of the charges being sold came up, Alex wanted the team. He had first right of refusal. If Gene was going to sell the team, Alex was going to have the first chance, chance at it. The Chargers owner at the time, Gene Klein, did not like Alex Spanos. He drove up the purchase price, valuing the team at $72 million four times what Spanos could have paid for the San Francisco 49ers less than a decade earlier. Alex overruled his board and bought the team anyway. Beginning with the 1984 season, the Chargers franchise was now in the Spanos era. It had been a rocky few years for the Chargers. The team had continued dominating the league with its notorious fast-paced offense known as Air Coriel. 
Despite four straight playoff appearances from 1979 to 1982, the team never reached a Super Bowl. And to make matters worse, an expose published in Sports Illustrated in 1982 by former Chargers defensive end Don Reese had chronicled prolific cocaine use within the Chargers organization. Reese had spent his career with both the New Orleans Saints and the Chargers. He wrote, quote, The only difference between the drug abuse in San Diego and the drug abuse in New Orleans was that in San Diego, more and bigger names were involved. End quote. Reese described freebasing with other players like star running back Chuck Muncie in the wee hours of the morning before training camp. 1983 saw the Chargers go 6-10. Fans could feel the competitive window closing. In that season alone, the Chargers ran an operating deficit of over $8 million. Alex Spanos had bought a team in crisis in a city that was starved for wins. Alex and his son Dean felt that they were the ones who could turn things around. Again, here's Kevin Acey. They're extremely hands-on. There are... Um they're just as hands-on as Jerry Jones. Um, now, not as publicly. It's not uh, in that market. Uh, the Chargers certainly now don't own the market uh, the way that the Cowboys do. Alex planned to operate the Chargers as he had operated all of his previous businesses. He wanted the team to be a lean, profitable venture that valued the bottom line above all else. Alex, Alex was was uh, was an owner who who thought he could treat football the way he treated his construction company, and he just couldn't do it the same way. It was, you know, that's, it's a mistake that not only he has made, but, but many owners have made. Football is a totally different business than, than the business that got these guys rich in the first place. And like the Spanos' other businesses, as former Chargers COO Jim Steed contests, there was another constant. It's a family business, and the family is first. Maybe the family is first through 10th, and then everybody else comes in after that. Um, that's, that's the priority that takes place is making sure that the family is taken care of. And um, you're not, Your name's never going to be the same as his. Immediately, Alex would learn about the difficulties this brought to running a football team. His first football event as owner was the 1984 rookie draft. Well, I mean, they drafted a Mossy Kate, who was a uh, corner from, uh, from Texas, and what was he, the sixth, seventh pick? Six. Yeah, sixth pick. And, um, and they lost him to the USFL. That's Jay Posner, sports editor of the San Diego Union-Tribune. Cade had refused to sign for less money than any player picked after him in the draft. Because Wilbur Marshall had signed a $3.1 million contract with the Chicago Bears after being selected 11th overall, Cade had his negotiating floor. But Alex Spanos wouldn't budge above $1.6 million. So Cade went to go play in the United States Football League on a higher contract. The USFL was a fledgling alternative league whose owners included Donald Trump. It was day after day after day of negotiations and, and, and BS and all that stuff, and both sides firing shots at the other sides. You know, losing him was not a good, you know, not a good sign either. It was a PR disaster for the new Chargers owner, Alex Spanos, who soon was criticized in the press for his unwillingness to spend the money to win. UT senior columnist, Nick Canepa. I mean, the problem with, with, with the Spanos is, is not that they didn't spend money. It's just that they didn't spend money wisely. Contract negotiations and player holdouts are just a part of football. But Mossy Cade had established a pattern that would be backed up by future incidents with Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, 
LaDainian Tomlinson, Vincent Jackson, Joey Bosa, and Melvin Gordon. The Spanos family would not be giving their stars a penny more than they had to, even if that meant losing them. The Chargers did have a major history with that. They took a hard line, and some of that was trusting their general manager for many of the years in the 2000s. It was uh, John Butler, and then it was A.J. Smith. Uh, they have one of the expert negotiators, a guy who helped write the CBA, is an excellent uh, negotiator, Ed McGuire. That's the right-hand man to the general manager. He's their salary cap guy. Uh, that's the way they did it. That wasn't all Spanos, but it was the people that they hired. So by extension, it, it was them. But bringing players into the Chargers organization was one thing. The Spanoses would become infamous in San Diego for the way that they treated their stars on their way out the door. Here's Bernie Wilson, San Diego sports writer for the Associated Press. But when Dan Fouts retired, his news conference was at his pool, next to his pool in, at his house in Rancho Santa Fe, not at the Charger Complex, at his house. When Junior Seau was traded to the Dolphins, again, he had a news conference at his restaurant. Former Chargers COO Jim Steig recalls a story that he says demonstrates Dean Spanos' relationship with his players. The example I always had was uh, LT, when, when LT retired, uh, Dean made a statement like he was, that's the player I've been closest to of any player that, you know, we had on the team. And uh, I, I was talking to Ladanian a couple of days later and he said, did he really say that? I said, yes, he did. He says, how can that be? I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I flew with him once on the airplane to, uh, to Miami for the Super Bowl and I uh, went to his house once for dinner. And I said, yes, that's more than what he's done with any player on the team. Ben Lieber was drafted by the Chargers in 2002 and played linebacker in San Diego for four years. When he hit free agency prior to the 06 season, he signed with the Minnesota Vikings. This was how he described his departure from coach Marty Schottenheimer and general manager A.J. Smith. Um, with Marty, it was, it was definitely the just, just sort of the canned, you know, thanks for your time here and, you know, um, let me know if we can ever help you out and, and, you know, st- still, still care for you and all this other stuff and just wish it would have worked out better. Um, from AJ, no, nothing, you know, yeah. you know, he, he, I, I don't even, I don't, I don't remember speaking more than two words to AJ, um, in the four years that I was there. So, um, that's how he liked to do things. For his entire time in charge, Alex was an absentee owner. He would fly home to Stockton each week while his son, Dean, remained in San Diego as his representative. When they first took over, the Spanoses had retained much of the Chargers staff from previous owner Gene Klein. As it turned out, some of the staff's loyalty remained with the old regime. Press leaks became common, and Alex even suspected that word about the organization's inner workings was making its way back to Klein before it ever reached Alex. This was all before the opening week kickoff of his first season. The Chargers would finish that 1984 season going 6-10, finishing last place in the AFC West. Spanos cleaned house, firing legendary coach Don Coriel in the 1986 season, and most of the operational staff soon followed. AP sports writer, Bernie Wilson. You know, you fired the architect of Eric Coriel. Um, granted, most coaches do get fired at some point, but you know this is a guy that a lot of people think should be in the Hall of Fame. The Chargers just tossed him out like that. 
only one of Spanos' first eight seasons would end with a winning record. Alex was a particularly vocal owner. He was known to yell and pout in his owner's box during games. And on Mondays following losses, he would enter the Chargers' offices in a tirade, bellowing about the incompetence of his players and coaches. Alex came in basically at least once a week. Uh, I mean, he didn't live here. He still managed to come down here. He scared the hell out of people when he came down here, but he came down here once a week. What, what do you mean he scared the hell out of people? Oh, he, just by his personality alone. The press had even given Alex a new nickname, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Spanos, a moniker that was emblematic of the Spanos family's rocky relationship with the media. As Bernie Wilson describes, Chargers PR director Bill Johnston would often be caught in the middle. And when you have an extra-sensitive owner like Spanos, then poor Bill, and Alex Spanos was legendary for exploding if he read something he didn't like. Um, he, he uh, you know, they would fax, back in the days of fax machines, they'd fax all the clips up to Alex in uh, Stockton. And if he didn't like something, Bill was either on the phone with the beat writer or email. I got a few of those emails. This love-hate relationship would continue under Dean's reign as owner, and even led to a common phrase being used by journalists who covered the team, John Gennaro. Uh, getting called into the principal's office. And essentially, if, if you said something that um, specifically like Dean Spanos would hear and didn't like, uh, he would direct his, you know, his PR team to call you into Chargers Park, and you would sit down, and Dean would essentially come in and yell at you for 10 minutes. Dean himself would come in and yell at you. If it was big enough, sometimes it was just the PR team that would yell at you. But occasionally it was Dean that would come in and yell at you and call you names. Uh, And, you know, there was always this implied, like, we can pull your credential at any time, and then you're of no use to your newspaper or radio station or TV station, uh, so you'll lose your job. So play nicely. Dean read and listened to everything. Local newspapers, talk radio, the evening sports anchors, and if he didn't like what was being said, he would take action. Once again, Derek Togerson, sports anchor for NBC7 San Diego. It was almost like clockwork. In fact, we would joke after a show. We'd say, you know, we'd talk afterwards like, all right, so what, what time do you think the phone call is coming tomorrow? And almost every time, you could, you could expect it. Something was coming. So yeah, that absolutely was true. I, the man has very, very, very thin skin. If I'm factually wrong, I will correct my story. That's the AP way. We all make mistakes. And if, if there's any fact, you call me any time, day or night, and I will fix it. And he go, it's not that, it's the tone of your story. And that was the, the, the word the charge is like. And finally I said, we're not recording a Beatles album. If you want tone, you know, I'm not George Martin. Tone, what do you mean tone? To be fair, these behaviors aren't exclusive just to the Spanoses. Many owners have been known to exhibit similar behaviors. In fact... The Spanoses were both rather well-liked amongst fellow NFL owners. Former Chargers beat reporter, Kevin Acey. He's highly respected, or he was highly respected among owners. But the owners always wanted to do right by Dean because he'd been a loyal to, to, to every commissioner. He'd been uh, loyal to other, dutifully uh, serving on committees and, uh, you know, taking... He was, a, he was actually a pretty decent politician among the NFL owners. Chicago Bears beat reporter, Pat Finley. You know, he's funny. He's, from the owners I've talked to in the NFL, I think he's well-liked. I don't think that anybody uh, has anything really bad to say about him. In Alex's first decade with the Chargers, 
the team went 68 and 91. They only had one playoff win to show for 10 years of Spanos ownership. The team needed change. So prior to the 1994 season, in true Alex Spanos fashion, he changed team leadership by giving control to his son, Dean. No one could dispute Dean Spanos' loyalty. Dean Spanos liked his employees. He liked his employees to like him. And he tried to stay loyal to them. Former Chargers COO, Jim Steig. When something would happen to somebody in the staff, you know, uh, we had one woman whose daughter died in a car accident. He's beyond compassionate uh, and taking care of him and things like that. Dean had won his father's blessing by convincing general manager Bobby Bethard to remain with the team. We talked to Stephen Cohen, managing editor of The Athletic in Seattle and a native San Diegan who knows more about the 1994 Chargers than practically anyone I've ever met. Yeah, so Bobby Beathard, when he came over in 1990, gave them sort of instant credibility because um, the Chargers post-Air Coriel had really sort of floundered. Um, and this was in the early years of the Spanos uh, family being in charge. And so what they wanted in Beathard is somebody who had a track record of success. And he certainly brought that from, from Washington, where he had helped the, uh, the Redskins to a couple of Super Bowls with Joe Gibbs. Bethard had threatened to quit because he wasn't being given enough money by Alex to bring top talent to San Diego. That's why Dean took over the club because and because because Bobby was not going was not going to work for him anymore. Dean sided with Bethard. The Chargers got the money, and Dean got the Chargers. But despite that, Dean had an uphill battle to win over the fan base. He came in, and I don't. I absolutely believe that a lot of longtime San Diegans always had that perception of him because he was just Daddy's boy who was given the team. The 1994 season marked the first time as owners that the Spanoses made it known that they'd be willing to spend money for a successful team. The first time that owning the Chargers wasn't about the bottom line. The difference showed. Bobby Bethard had taken what worked from his time as Washington's general manager and built a scrappy version from the ground up. He was able to, much like Bill Belichick is like able to do today, see what a player can do as opposed to what he can't do, and then just ask him to do the things he can do. Basically find a role for a guy on a team um, that, that he can fill and leave the stuff he can't do for somebody else. Place kicker John Carney was signed by Bobby Bethard in 1990 and remained on the team throughout Bethard's 11-year tenure with the Chargers. Uh, I love Bobby. You know, he uh, having the ability to mix the team with great veteran leadership with young rising talent, uh, that is the equation that works for winners. And so um, that's hard to do, and he did a great job of doing that. Bethard had brought in quarterback Stan Humphreys from his old team and given him a veteran offensive line that weaponized second-year running back Natron Means into a force. Stan Brock, who uh, he came in for the New Orleans Saints in 1994, and within months we voted him as one of our team captains. It was a classic power rush offense, the kind that's come back into style in the modern game under head coaches Kyle Shanahan and Mike Vrabel. Meanwhile, a homegrown defensive unit led on all three levels by Chargers draftees Leslie O'Neill, Junior Seau, and Stanley Richard had solidified a top 10 defense in the league. They were hard-nosed, they were physical. It was a it was a bunch of guys who most of them weren't on their first NFL stop, most of them were on their, you know, second or third at least. 
and were brought in to fill very specific roles by a very smart front office and a very, uh, very capable coaching staff. And then they worked really hard. They were led by head coach Bobby Ross, a military veteran whose attitude set the tone for this ragtag group of NFL veterans. Um, kind of a no-nonsense guy. I think Mark Say called him corny. Uh, Southern drawl, a little bit of a lisp. Uh, did not play favorites. Not a guy who's going to give a huge rah-rah speech. Uh, not a Vince Lombardi in that sense, but a Vince Lombardi in the sense of being uh, strict uh, in, the, in, the, in the right manner. Uh, and discipline in the right manner. A guy who was going to make you practice hard and he was going to watch every rep. And if you didn't do the rep correctly, he was going to make you do it over again. Um, he really believed in doing the little things well, and he believed in repetition. During defensive tackle Tony Savage's time with the Chargers, he played for both Bobby Ross and his predecessor, Dan Henning. He was a lot more disciplined than Henning. Henning um, treated us more like just grown men, uh, not to say that Bobby Ross didn't um, as well, but he was just more disciplined. He wouldn't tolerate as much nonsense as Henning would. Support for Bolted is brought to you by Manscaped, who is the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools. They obsess over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. This is a San Diego-based company. We'd love to help out local business, but they have a global reach. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million. Oh my God, 2 million men worldwide. Join the movement for all your below-the-waist grooming needs. We talk a lot in this episode about football players in the 80s, some pretty legendary beards on those teams, standalone mustaches that are not so great, but it was the 80s, you can imagine. None of them, what I promise you, none of them had what they would have wanted. The Lawnmower 3.0. I'm telling you folks, it has changed my life. No nicks, no cuts, it's waterproof, and... We have a promo code for you. Get 20% off and free shipping with the code BOLTED at manscaped.com. That's promo code BOLTED at manscaped.com. Want to give a brief moment to talk about our newest sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you're looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the place to go to cop that pair you've been eyeing. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee that includes a digital stamp of authenticity, and it also protects sellers with a verified return process. And for sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees for sneakers over $100, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com slash sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. And now, back to the show. Perhaps no game was more emblematic of that 1994 season than the very first one, a week one away game at Mile High Stadium in Denver. Here's former radio voice of the Chargers, Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. It was a Sunday night game. It was hot, it was humid, and it was thunder and lightning dancing across the sky. And Elway was the quarterback. During those years, you had to get past the Denver Broncos. Um, you know, they were coming off a few Super Bowls. The Chargers fell behind fast, down 17 to nothing in the first quarter. But somehow, as they would throughout the year to come, the team found a way to claw back. And then came back in the second quarter to take a lead on a Stanley uh, Richard 
the 99-yard interception off of John Elway. And the Chargers started to come back and kept coming back and coming back, got the lead, gave up the lead, got the lead back. And here we are in the final minute and a half of the game, and Elway taking them down the field. And I thought, oh, we're going to lose this game. That's what I thought to myself, because that's Elway, and we're in Mile High Stadium. And with, I don't know, a minute one or something to go, Junior Seau intercepts Elway, snuffs out the drive. We win in Denver where we had never, ever run. Uh, I think that was an indication and the first sign that this year could be special because that was a big hurdle that we faced early in the season. The Chargers battled injuries and a competitive division to finish 11-5 in 1994 for just their second AFC West title in a decade. The franchise had new life. The team felt destined to win. And San Diego, the city that had stood by as the 80s and high-flying Air Coriel came and went impossibly without a Super Bowl, they were starting to come alive. The Chargers looked at the top of their game on the practice field this afternoon as they finished final preparations for the Dolphins. A few hundred Charger fans were at the top of their games, too, for a pep rally in the stadium parking lot. In the divisional round of the playoffs, the Chargers somehow got through the Dan Marino and Don Shula-led Miami Dolphins. Against Miami, Dan Marino runs up, I think, a 20-point lead in the first half. Over the years, a mark of a very good coaching staff is the adjustments they make at halftime. Uh, if we were close at halftime, I knew we were going to come out and have a big third quarter because I had confidence in the staff to make the right adjustments at halftime. And those adjustments usually led to a big third quarter. Uh, and then the Chargers come all the way back in the second half. And they, they use a momentum-shifting safety a lights-out showing from the defense and touchdowns from Natron Means and wide receiver Mark Say put the Chargers on top 22-21, to where they would remain as a field goal attempt from Dolphins kicker Pete Stoyanovich sailed right as time expired. They were one game away from the Super Bowl. It's just a huge you know, win for San Diego. First playoff game there in the Jack Murphy in a while. The celebrations, however, were brief because the prize for victory was a one-way ticket to the unforgiving home of the Steel Curtain, Three Rivers Stadium in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh had an aura of invincibility at Three Rivers. It was Bill Cower. It was Blitzburg, and their great reputation as pass rushers. And we had never had any success there. We'd go in here and get hammered all the time. The Steelers had gone 12-4 and in their third straight playoff appearance under head coach Bill Cower. They had the league's best rushing offense, the league's best defense, and one of the most fearsome home field advantages in all of American sports. Pittsburgh had just, I believe, reintroduced or introduced the terrible towels that year, that playoff run. So that was kind of the first time where you walked into Three Rivers Stadium and you saw all those yellow towels swirling around and Bill Cower, you know, scowling on the sidelines. Um, so yeah, it was an intimidating place to play. Players, commentators... Everyone knew that the Chargers had to prove themselves. Here was Hacksaw on the radio before the game. River Stadium in Pittsburgh on a rainy Sunday. The San Diego Chargers are hoping some thunder and lightning shows up on the field later today. The Chargers hoping to go where they've never, ever been before the Super Bowl. And when the game kicked off at Three River Stadium, the 61,000 fans in attendance were given every reason to remain confident in the Steelers. And we went down there in the first first drive of the game. Neil O'Donnell took them right down the field and they scored. And I thought, oh, this is going to be hard. You know, how, we've never done well here. 
The Chargers completed just one pass attempt in the first half. They went to the locker room down 10-3, and it seemed all the naysayers would be proven right. At this point, it's worth remembering. The Chargers had no business being here. They finished in last place the season prior, and many had slated them for a similar fate in 1994. It was going to take a miracle for the Chargers to claw their way back. In fact, it took three. You know, when it came down, you just got a couple big plays. You had a Pupunu, Alfred Pupunu, uh, 43 yard touchdown. They've been running Natron Means on a play action. They kept running, and I knew they were setting Pittsburgh up for this. They ran a fake handoff to Natron Means. Pittsburgh's defense crashed down. Humphreys pulled it back, stepped back, and threw a bomb to the tight end down the sidelines. Wide open. Wide open from here to the road. And Alfred Pupuno walked in and scored. You have Tony Martin breaking free on the sideline for what would end up being a game-winning score. Tim McHire kind of hanging on his back. Two separate 43-yard touchdown passes from Stan Humphreys had torn the Steelers' secondary apart. The unthinkable was transpiring in Pittsburgh. The Steelers were losing. But they had one more shot to get to the end zone with five minutes left and all their timeouts remaining. In football terms, that might as well have been a million years. The Steelers got the ball back and drove all the way down to the Chargers' three-yard line. It was like watching General Cowers march to the sea, with the Steelers torching the Chargers' defense along the way. A last-ditch effort meant that it was coming down to fourth and goal. Just like the week prior, it appeared that football was working itself out. Equilibrium was coming, and the error that had been the 1994 Chargers was in the process of self-correcting. Steelers quarterback Neil O'Donnell dropped back to find that he had almost no pass rush coming at him. He had time, because the players which would normally be barreling towards him to drive him to the ground were instead covering his receivers. Three wide receivers, John L. Williams in motion. Neil O'Donnell on a fourth down play to save the season to throw. Fire! San Diego didn't know how to comprehend it. This had never happened before. It was like dividing by zero. There was no manual on what to do when your team punches a ticket to the Super Bowl. Some people just went out into the streets. On Garnett Avenue this afternoon, around one o'clock this afternoon, a young man went out into the street, popped a cork on a champagne bottle, and all of a sudden, everybody joined in the celebration there was a traffic jam for five or six blocks in Pacific Beach. Everybody reveling in this great Charger victory. And I'll tell you what, this place is going nuts, and I'm sure many places around San Diego. But a lot of people went to the only place that they could think of, Jack Murphy Stadium, the ugly concrete colossus that had been the exclusive site of heartbreak for nearly three decades. Once again, former kicker John Carney. Well, we heard on the plane that there were some folks, some fans that were coming out to the stadium uh, to meet the team. So we had no idea what that meant. By the time the Chargers plane landed back in San Diego, there were more than 68,000 people sitting in the stadium, as if they were ready for the Super Bowl to kick off that night. We had no idea that they filled the stadium up uh, with no traffic control. (laughs) 
no concessions. Uh, they turned the lights on, and so our buses, I think we drove to the back of the stadium and walked down the tunnel and walked into a stadium. I think they had a stage set up uh, real quickly, and uh, the stadium was full. It was so, so bizarre, so surreal. Like a sleeping giant awakened after decades of hibernation, the city of San Diego came alive with excitement tonight, celebrating what some thought to be the impossible, the Chargers going to the Super Bowl. This was a party everybody in town wanted to be at. The near 70,000 fans who were able to pack inside the Murph let their emotions and years of frustrations go. Quarterback Stan Humphreys addressed the sports media's prediction that the Chargers would be outmatched in Pittsburgh. They're talking in the paper. We did ours on the field. You know, to meet their team, I don't know what time of night it was, maybe midnight, and, uh, you know, 60,000 plus fans to come out. I don't know if there's been anything like that around the country since then, but that was pretty amazing. People in San Diego started using a four-letter word. One that you should never use in sports. Fate. They thought fate was waiting for them at Super Bowl XXIX in Miami. Because the team that awaited them was the team that Alex Spanos had declined the chance to buy in 1976 for $18 million. The four-time Super Bowl champion, San Francisco 49ers. The Chargers were underdogs again. This time by a whopping 18 and a half points. But that hadn't mattered in Pittsburgh, right? How could you tell San Diego how this would be any different than any other game that season? Football answered San Diego's challenge with two words. Steve Young. That Niners team was, uh, in, for my money, it's like one of the best, uh, I don't know, three or four NFL teams of all time. Niners really stocked up that year with Deion Sanders and uh, a number of other players that really um, stacked the deck. But they were a phenomenal team. Uh, you know, half their guys are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame that played on that team. Steve Young playing, having one of the best quarterbacking seasons you'll ever see. Um, you know, John Taylor, Jerry Rice, Ricky Waters on offense, an offensive line full of guys who made Pro Bowls and all pros. Yeah, there was no stopping them that year. The Chargers never so much as sniffed the lead in Super Bowl XXIX. The game was over in 10 minutes. They were embarrassed. Steve Young threw a Super Bowl record six passing touchdowns on his way to MVP. Once again, San Diego sports writer for the Associated Press, Bernie Wilson. They weren't ready for it. They partied too much that week. So that was their first time, and those guys weren't used to Super Bowl week. And in fact, one of them later said, standing on the sideline for the national anthem and the fireworks and the flyover, he said a lot of them were just completely blown away. They, all of a sudden, they realized it's like, Got, we're at the Super Bowl. And I, you know, that was, it wasn't the greatest moment of their life. It was like the fright of their life. It's like, oh God, here we are. And they just had a feeling here and way over their head. Sure enough. Alex Spanos had finally made good on his promise to bring the Chargers to the Super Bowl, but they would come home empty handed. The Super Bowl season of 1994 changed San Diego forever. The local fervor surrounding the team evoked something previously unseen in the city. San Diego is a city of transplants. People move there, whether it's to join the military, find a better life in America, or just because they want some nice weather. On the night that they returned home to Jack Murphy Stadium after defeating the Steelers, Junior Seau, San Diego's native son, 
perfectly encapsulated what their playoff run meant to the city. They didn't think Beach Bronx play football. They thought this was only a tourist attraction. They know about Shamu. Now, the world, the world is going to know not about Junior Sam, not about Natron Me, not about Stan Humphrey, not about Leslie O'Neill. But the San Diego Chargers. For the first time in decades, the city was united. They had been bonded to the Chargers franchise forever. The Spanos era had for so long meant more of the same. Until it didn't. Until Alex handed control to Dean. Until the family prioritized winning over the bottom line. Until Alex Spanos, in his own sacred words, took on some risk. But just as critical to this story, it also legitimized the ownership reign of Dean Spanos. At least it did in Dean's eyes. I think it does anybody in that situation. I don't think to any level that, uh-oh, that ruined things. But he has acknowledged, and believe me, in 30 years of doing this, several people who have been in his similar situation, be they players who their rookie season went to the Super Bowl, the World Series, whatever, you think it's going to be easy. And... That one fell apart pretty quick. Dean had one season in charge, and it was an AFC championship season. Oh, and another thing happened that year. The Rams and Raiders franchises both unceremoniously left Los Angeles. There was now a gaping, football-shaped hole in the nation's second-largest market. Once again, Derek Togerson. What an astute businessman would have done. You start buying billboards in Los Angeles. You start buying advertising time in Los Angeles. You start marketing. You go to the NFL and say, we're rebranding as the Southern California Chargers. Or the the California Angels were a thing for a long time. We're the California Chargers. You rebrand that way and you start to bring those fans down to San Diego. Never made any kind of a decent attempt to do that. That was when they started to lose the Southern California market and the Los Angeles market. The Spanos' decision not to push for more fans from LA in the wake of the Rams and Raiders' departure would mean more trouble down the road. Instead of the Chargers having a firm foothold on the Southern California region, a power vacuum formed and remained for two decades, one that would become more useful to the NFL than a living, breathing football team ever could. In 2015, Dean followed in his father's footsteps passing day-to-day control of the team to his own sons, John and A.G. However, Dean kept one crucial responsibility for himself, getting a new stadium built in San Diego. Dean Spanos and other members of the Los Angeles Chargers organization declined our request for interview. On the next episode of Bolted, a perfect storm of bad football and bad politics poisons the well in San Diego our conversations with Ryan Leaf and the policymakers that were there. I just got defensive and angry. The Chargers came to the city and said, we want three years of free rent. The actuaries were being told, shut up. And it was a shit show. I don't remember a positive thing happening in my time with the Chargers 
after that moment. Bolted is written and edited by me, Rafi Cantor. Our producer is Ben Stein. We're mixed by Jordan Cantor, who also wrote and performed our original music. Special thanks to Alex Wu, Ron Cantor, and Nate and Lisa Stein. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.